0: Well, good morning again. It's great to see you. Thanks for gathering here this morning. Isn't it fun to say, like, on a chilly, somewhat chilly morning, at least for Floridians, right? So it is all good, yes. Um, so grateful that you're here. Thanks for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium where it's always cold in here, regardless of what's happening outside. But uh, really grateful, yeah, to gather with you, to be able to sing songs to King Jesus, to be able to open up God's. Word uh, together this morning, and so if you're new, let me catch you up to speed a bit. We are journeying through the great book of Acts, looking at the, the really the history of like how did the church begin and how is Jesus building his church. And it's really a story of Jesus faithfully, uh, yeah, building his church. He works in and through us, but it's his work from beginning to end, and yet we get to step back and sort of witness all that he's doing. And then we also get to be part of bearing witness, meaning we get to declare the excellencies of of King Jesus and look at what he's done and give testimony to other people about how he's working in our lives. And we wanna see this movement go forward. And so part of this gathering this morning is for us to continue to witness what God is doing. And then also it's opportunity to bear witness. Like you singing songs a moment ago, you're bearing witness to the reality of Jesus in your life. You studying the Bible this morning, these are all ways that we're bearing witness to one another to the community and then we are sent out as the church. And so this morning we are going to be continuing where we, be, where we left off last week and it's the middle part of Acts chapter 6. And so if you're seeing what's up on the screen right now, Acts 6, all right, beginning in verse 8, which means we got to finish Chapter six, and then we gotta go through verse 60, which is the end of chapter seven. You know there is a lot of ground to cover. Um, and so here's what I wanna encourage you to do. We'll take this section by section. I'm not gonna ask you to stand as I read this because you, know, you just get tired, man. So anyway, um, but we will make our way through this. And so if you brought a Bible, turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the back tables. At any point, get up, go grab one of those. Turn to page 1012 is where this begins. It'll cover a few pages. Uh, Or you can go to cpwp.life on your phone right now. Swipe over, you'll see a card that says message notes. And there, anything that's up on the screen will be listed there. There's actually, you can click a button to take notes and then email that to yourself afterwards. So I'd encourage you to make use of that if that is helpful. And so here's the... Kind of where we are picking up with the story just before we dive into this. Um, this is a historical account of a man named Stephen. And Stephen, what we learned about him in the first uh, seven verses of chapter six was he was part of the the original seven men that were commissioned to help carry on the work. That the apostles there was too much for them to do, and so they are given this work, kind of help shoulder the load. And we pick up some things early on we start to learn about this man who did apparently what he was called to do to help kind of serve the tables like taking care of the widows and stuff but apparently he was also uh doing more than that because we're going to see like there's this regular proclamation that he gets into and it's going to cause some difficulty in his life and if you know this story you know uh Stephen is the man who is historically he is the first Christian martyr in in this new church and so if you're like oh man like where's this story heading like that's that's where it goes and so it's a heavy and It's a weighty text, and part of the reason for doing so many verses is it's this, what we're going to look at in chapter 7 is a sermon really he declares. I mean, imagine this, it's like this sermon and he's kind of preaching his own funeral is basically what's about to transpire and so there's no good place to just sort of break it off and like we'll pick up next week and so we want to look at this kind of continuous thought certainly there's more detail we could get into uh, but we will take it in its entirety this morning and so it begins though with these accusations so look with me at Acts chapter 6 we'll be in verses 8 to 15 that'll finish out chapter 6 and then we'll get into this sermon that Stephen preaches and so it says this I'll just jump up one more verse because we need more verses this morning but it says the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith so here's this movement that's happening more and more people are meeting Jesus and now it tells us in verse 8 here's what happened and Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and they disputed with Stephen. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witness who says, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so as this... Starts out, we are introduced again to this man, Steve, and Tells us he's full of grace and power. Apparently, he's doing more than just going out and, and taking care of the needs of the widows, though that is to be commended. I mean, he's also just getting into conversation. He is proclaiming the, the truth of who Jesus is, and he's full of grace and power. Like, people are looking. People that don't even believe what he believes are like, that guy, like something's going on with that guy, Stephen. It's the word of God is continuing to have this transformative effect. And Stephen is like caught up in this and he can't help but tell people about who Jesus is. And so he's full of grace and power. And you would think this would be celebrated, but it's not. And so right away, he runs into opposition that there are a group of people, all right, that are really bent out of shape about this. And so they create, like, they stir up controversy, all right? They, they posted some things on Facebook about him. It stirs up. The comment sections are blowing up. I mean, there's all this drama now surrounding Stephen, and even there's false witnesses that are coming and saying, hey, he's speaking against the temple. He, he's, you know, he's mocking. He's disregarding Moses and the law. Like, this man needs to be stopped. And so I want to ask for a moment as we look at this, because there can be a tendency. I know in my heart to look and kind of see myself in the story as like, well, I would like to think that I'm like Stephen, and I can't believe these wicked people who would be upset by Jesus being proclaimed, all right, and miss that, no, the reality is there's something that's happening in my heart and in your heart that is very similar, unfortunately, to the crowds here that are getting so fired up that there are at times, there's these pursuits that we have and they're in opposition to what God would actually have for us. And so I want to ask you just, you know, what do you think is actually going on here? I mean, why is there the the lies that they're telling? Why are they saying Stephen is doing things that, that he wasn't in fact doing? Why is there this, I would say there seems to be some real fear that's present here. Like what's at the root of that? What's going on there? And then coupled with that, why is there this anger with the crowd? I mean, they're just stirred up and they're dragging him before the council and they're like, somebody has to do something with this man. We're going to see the anger doesn't subside. Like by the end of chapter 7, it's going to tell us that they're they're literally bearing down with like their teeth and they're just so angry that they want to just move forward with killing this man. Like what actually, like what is going on? And one of the things I think we have to see that I think is showcased here in these opening verses before we get into Stephen's sermon is this, that I think they're operating with what might be called a preservation mindset. And here's what I mean by that, and I don't think it's just for people back then, I think it's present with me up here this morning, I would guess, hazard a guess it's with you as well this morning, that there's this mindset that like, there's these things that we value, and they can be good things. Was the temple a good gift? Yeah, it certainly was. Was the law a good gift? Yes, it certainly was. There are these things that, you know, Stephen's not against, but he's saying you're kind of missing the point. And as he begins to talk about what is right and true and what those things were meant to point to, this group of people, I think, are just interested in preserving and protecting what they had. And anytime that feels threatened, all right, like, they start to go crazy. Maybe I'll put it to you this way. A number of years ago, my wife and I, we were... We had visited some friends. They live up in uh, like the Shenandoah Valley in, in Virginia. It's just a beautiful area, and we asked, like, hey, where's a good hike to go on? And so we got instructions to go, and we pulled up to the trailhead, and I knew it was an ominous start because you have those moments. Maybe you've done this before. You're like, I don't know. It's not well marked. Is it the trailhead? Is it not? Well... I don't know, there's a big field, there's a hill. That'll be fun, right? And so we, we venture on out of the vehicle and we're making our way up and it's this kind of clear like field up this hill and there's like tall grass, so it's kind of late in, in the summer. Um, and as we're walking through, this is not an actual picture, just so you know, um, but, uh, but this is where the story is heading, okay? Um, we start to make our way up, up this, this hill and we see, we're like, oh, look, isn't that cute? We see, this, we see actually like this little bear cub, all right? And then within, almost instantly, you realize, oh yeah, well that's cute, but not really, because that probably means there's a mama bear somewhere around, all right? And so just a little further up the hill, in really tall grass, all of a sudden we see this thing stand up on its back legs, and is now is like looking down the hill at us. And I was like, uh, Heather, why don't you go? Um, <laughs> and, and so in that moment, right, you're just like, no, uh, I don't know, Maybe, yeah, we're probably on the wrong trail, and so we just need to go. And now that's this good instinct that this mother had, like it's gonna protect its young, all right? Not, nothing wrong with that. But can we be honest? I think there's this preservation mindset when the things that we value, that we've made ultimate, could be a career it could be a relationship it could just be approval of other people there's something that our heart longs for and I think these people back then they had a particular way that they went about their you know kind of religious observance they found great safety and uh, and comfort in doing the things the way that they had always done them and they thought that they could earn the affection of God and they didn't want anybody threatening them. So there's sort of this rising up, like, how dare you? When our idols, as the scripture talks about them, get threatened, right? Like, there's this fierce defending that we have. And this isn't just for the world out there that doesn't know Jesus. It's talking about, like, the reality in your heart and in my heart. When something that we overvalue gets threatened, I mean, we are rising up, and like, I'm gonna fight somebody right now. That's what's happening here. And Stephen now is gonna have this confrontation. And yet, did you notice the line as it concludes chapter six? It says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't think he's being smug here, all right? I don't think this is like the, the kid who gets punished, maybe hypothetically I did this, you know, and like as a young kid and you get the spanking, you're like, mm, that didn't hurt, right? Like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that, all right? I don't think he's just like sitting there with an attitude. I think what actually is happening is he has such a, Peace and a confidence in who he is in Christ, that it literally tells us his face was like that of an angel. A lot of scholars would actually say, hey, there's probably a parallel here of one time in the scriptures, there's another man, the man that they think Stephen is actually disregarding, that is Moses, who went up and got the law at the top of the mountain. And when he came down, Exodus 34, you can go read this account, tells us that his face was like glowing, like it was just radiating. And I'm like, hey, maybe there's something similar here, a God sort of way of showing, oh, you think he's mocking Moses? No, this man actually is acting just like him. Like he's being a voice for me and proclaiming my truth. And so he's got this calm disposition. And he's got this rock-solid identity in who, who he is in Christ. He's heard the word of God, he's found his identity in the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus, and though he has been brought before council, though he is being threatened, though they are rising up like a mama bear just wanting to tear him limb from limb, he has this calm. How does he have that? And what does that enable him to actually do? And so that's what we see here, as we look through these verses, there's 53 verses that are the message of Stephen. It's his sermon. It's Functionally, it's him preaching his own funeral. Um, And we don't even get to get to the end of it because the people get so cranked up that they actually just put an end to his life. And what we have going on here, and I've referenced it already, is that there are these identity markers. So as we read this, and we'll kind of look at it section by section, I want you to see it in this way. The things that Stephen is speaking about I don't even think he's speaking against them. He's saying, oh, you've just missed the point. Those were signs that were meant to point to something else. You have to see this. This proclamation or this confrontation with this group of religious leaders is out of love. This is not Stephen trying to rob these people of joy. He's trying to say, no, the thing that you are actually like worshiping, the thing that you've made ultimate was meant to point you to something. Like I've used this illustration before, but it's, it's like you with your family traveling to some you know theme park or some, you know, there's some national park maybe that you're going to and you get out of the side of the road when you see the first road sign that says, you know, here, exit here. Like you're not at the destination yet, all right? That sign is important, but it's meant to point you like where you're ultimately gonna go. And what Stephen is doing is saying, listen, you're standing next to the side of the road, jumping up and down thinking you've arrived. Like no, those things were meant to point you in a new direction they were meant to show you something and you're missing out and the things that he's going to confront them on there's these identity markers he talks in these verses about the about the land about the law and about the temple and so for the Jewish people those were of utmost importance and you might think okay well those things don't have a whole lot to do with my life perhaps but the reality is there's all sorts of things that the Lord has given to us that we can turn and try and make ultimate and then we miss it and we're constantly, as a people, I think looking for identity markers to say, look at me, look at me, all right? Um, I grew up in Western Michigan, all right? It means that there's a fair amount of, uh, there's a Dutch population, all right? And so I'm not saying I had this T-shirt, but maybe you can see it there. If you ain't Dutch, then you ain't much, all right? Um, that was like a common refrain, right? And so, I mean, we've got our tulip festivals, and we've got our wooden shoes, and you know, we got all that, that stuff. Um, Some of you know this about me. It wasn't even a Boy Scout, man. I was a Calvinist cadet. I mean, that's hardcore right there, okay? You're like, is that a real thing? Yeah, it is. Look it up. Anyway, I'm still scarred. But all right, so... um there's all these little markers that we look for, like I'm in this group, I'm in the right group. If you don't think that that's real though, if you think this is a problem a couple thousand years ago and and not now, just pay attention about like even like who people are gonna vote for in the upcoming days, right? Like it's all kinds of things. And I'm not saying, hey, if you wanna know our position, like we're pro-voting, we're pro-engagement. At the end of the day though, we are anti-self-righteousness. All right, but it wells up. It's like I'm in the right group or I got the right candidate or I got this issue that I'm really passionate about and you can be passionate and that is good but at the same time, we sometimes can find, we kind of hang our hat on that, like look at me, I'm amazing and let me sort of showcase to the world and we start doing this little little virtue signaling and sort of like, look at me, I'm with the right person. I've got the right thoughts on this and it's all these ways that we're trying to build our identity. It's like we're wearing the t-shirt that just proclaims how awesome I am. And so the first thing that we see then is the land. And so look with me, I'm just gonna read, there's a lot of ground to cover here, just make a few comments along the way. But what Stephen does is he says, okay, we gotta talk about this. The land is a good gift that the Lord has given, all right? The promised land, yes and amen to that. But he's like, you've actually made it like this identity marker. You're thinking like, okay, if you don't have the land, then somehow you actually don't have an identity and things begin to crumble. And he's like, that's not how it was meant to be. And if you think for a moment that God is simply contained in one geographic location, you've missed it. And so he goes back and he says, hey, let me tell you the story. So the high priest said, are these things so? And in verse two, we get the start of his sermon. And at first glance too, as you read this, you're like, he doesn't really seem to be answering the guy's question, but he is. What he's doing though, is he's retelling their story in a better, truer way and saying, listen, I need you to look at the things that you would say you believe, but you've missed, like you haven't connected the dots. This is meant to point you somewhere. So he begins this way. He talks about Abraham. He says, brothers and fathers. Again, these are people he cares about. This is family language here. Hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Okay, where's the glory of God appearing? Not just in the promised land of Israel. It's in other locations. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. So Abraham, this hero of the faith, he didn't even get a foot's length worth of the the plot of land. All right? Land is a great gift, but it's not ultimate but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. He's speaking of Egypt here. He says, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So he just starts out and he's like, listen, listen, God's not contained in one geographic location and I want you to remember there's this man that was raised up and the calling, you go and start read in Genesis chapter 12 and the account of Abraham, it's he was meant to be a blessing to all the nations. God is doing something bigger than what these people think that he's doing. God is doing something bigger than what you might suppose and what I might suppose that he's doing. And so there's this call back to, listen, this is the story that you're part of. Don't miss it. God is raising up a people for himself that would be a blessing, and it's not contained in one geographic location. Then he begins to move to, look at verse nine through 16. He begins to talk about Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt. He's sold by his own brothers. But God was with him. All right, notice that. In Egypt, this pagan land, this non-God-fearing land, it's, it's, what's happening? God is with him. That God is present. God is not contained. God is not throttled by circumstances. And he rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So he's he's telling this history. And there's like, okay, why all the details? I think you just got to zoom out and say, okay, God is with Joseph. God is working his plan. God is protecting. He said that one day from the seed of the woman, there would come this one that would crush the head of the enemy. There's this preservation of God's family, of this seed. He raised it up in Abraham. His wife, who was barren, suddenly has this miraculous child. And down now we have a group of people in Egypt, and God is looking out for them. Joseph would declare in Genesis chapter 50, though my brothers intended it for evil, like God, you intended it for good, like for this, so the saving of many lives might take place. Like God is at work. And he's calling the people, it's like, don't forget the story that you're part of. It's not contained in one geographic location. Don't worship the, the land. Don't get caught up on that. Don't find your identity in anything other than God and his grace. And so he continues here, we look at then the famous one, Moses, that is raised up. And so let me read these verses. It says, at the time, beginning in verse 17, at the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased, they multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. There's this massacre because the people of God are beginning to multiply. And the Pharaoh's like, we can't have this. And so all the boys are supposed to be killed. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Look at the protection of God there. God is at work. God is allowing this Jewish boy to be raised in the household of Pharaoh, to learn all the customs of the Egyptians, to learn that that culture, to be used as a to be used for a, a good work that the Lord is going to do through him. The Lord is with Moses. Verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now Moses is on the run. He's fleeing for his life, he's scared. And the question becomes Will God be with him in that place? Look how the story continues. Now when 40 years had passed. This is important too, right? Like we want things in like a certain amount of time. And these are 40 year like epochs. These are 40 year kind of chunks of time. So he flees when he's 40. And for 40 years, all right, now he apparently just kind of goes about his work. He's a shepherd. He's hanging out. He's got a wife and some kids now. But he hasn't heard from God. He hasn't had this encounter. This is the burning bush. The dude's 80 now. All right? Like, that's a long period of time to just sort of be waiting. And so when I'm like, God, I prayed 15 minutes ago. What's up? Like, why haven't you worked, right? Like, there's patience here, trusting God's timing. Now, 40 years had passed, and an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. You're in the presence of God out here in the wilderness. You're away from the promised land. You're away from your home that is Egypt. You're out here in the middle of nowhere, and God is here. He has shown up. He is with you, and he is carrying out his plans to bring rescue and redemption this is the story that you're part of he says I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and it's not just a God who sees the affliction back then he sees the affliction that you've dealt with in this past 24 hours the past week your entire life he knows what you what afflictions you will encounter and he is with you and he sees you and he wants to minister to you that's the story that you're part of so I've seen the affliction of my people are in Egypt. This is verse 34. And I've heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. So God is raising up. God hasn't forgotten his plans. God is on the move. Do you believe this? And so one of the things that's been communicated here by Stephen is just saying, listen, God's not contained. Look at the heroes of our faith, right? Look at Abraham, look at Joseph, look at Moses. Like God met them outside of this geographic location. Like if you've made this the ultimate, like that doesn't make any sense at all. God is so much bigger and God sees us, he hears us. God is on the move. And then it moves then to this other identity marker for the people. They had made the law, which was a good gift from the Lord. They had made it ultimate thinking, okay, we set ourselves apart from the other people because we got this land and we're gonna, we're gonna obey and it is good to obey. And there was some truth in that. At the same time, they thought, well, we can keep this. And so they would add to things. They'd come up with all sorts of different restrictions to make sure that they wouldn't violate the law. And over time, what happened is there was a self-righteousness and a self-reliance that began to take place. I mean, Romans 7, if you go and read it, will tell you this. Like Romans 7, in verse 7 says, hey, the law was given to show you actually, like, that you can't keep it. Like, it exposes it, it sh- suddenly shows you, like, oh, well, that's coveting, and you coveted, and that's a sin, and it leads to death. Like, until the law came, we didn't have any sort of categories for that, and the law is meant not to puff you up, but to drive you down to see, oh, I am in desperate need of a Savior. I can't do this on my own. And yet, the people think, well, here's Stephen. He's speaking against the law. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not speaking against it. It's a good gift. It's just been misappropriate it's been misused it was a sign to point to our need and yet you're resting in your ability to do it like have you even paid attention so look here what he says he's like okay you want to talk about the law he says this moses verse 35 whom they rejected and that's a reoccurring theme here about rejection of god's appointed prophets and leaders says who made you a ruler and a judge well, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. That's a key line there. They're like, basically what Stephen is doing, saying, even Moses way back when said there's this one that's gonna be raised up. We know that to be Jesus, And what he's going to accuse them of, rightly, is saying this is the one that was raised up and you actually put him to death. Verse 38, he says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. This is speaking of the law. He was given the law to give to us. Our fathers, though, refused to obey him but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt Imagine that. They've been rescued, they've been freed from Egypt, and they're like, we just want to go back. Moses had been up on that mountain too long, and they turned to Aaron, and they're like, Aaron, come on, help us out here. And this is what it says in verse 40, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who has led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of of their hands. That's a key phrase. And the scriptures talk about the works of their hands so often. Like we celebrate that, right? Like hey, this is handmade, all right? It's like, oh that's cool. You you made that. In biblical language though, works of their hands usually means they've crafted and created something to bow down and worship. All right. So rather than just celebrating it and saying, oh, this is a good gift, works of their hands is kind of this signal like, hey, that thing is gone in the wrong direction he says okay so they made this golden calf but God turned away and gave them over to the worship the host of heaven as is written in the book of the prophets And there's this reference from Amos it says did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile before Babylon there is a ton here but here's what we just need to see he's like the law it was given to moses it's a good gift but you have set your hope on that it was meant to drive you to a savior galatians paul would write this in galatians chapter 3 verse 23 to 26 it says now before faith came we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed so then the law was our guardian until christ came so it served a purpose he's saying in order that we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And that language there, sons of God, is not meant to exclude women, it's, it's an invitation because in that culture, it was the, the sons who got the inheritance, it the, the sons who got the gifts, it's just saying like, hey, men and women who follow Jesus, like you're in on this This is what Jesus has done for you. And so Stephen says, listen, you've made it about the law. Like you feel like you've got a sure identity because you're following these rules. He's like, you can't do it perfectly. And that was never the point anyway. It was meant to drive you and show you your need for Jesus. And then look, he concludes with speaking about the temple as he references David and Solomon. This is in verse 44. He says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, speaking of the tabernacle, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua. So when they actually come into the promised land, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses, and there's that phrase, what? Made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So even when they get to the land, even when they're able to construct this beautiful, ornate temple, there's this language, and this is what is beginning to incite the crowd, Because he says, the Lord is not contained by something built by human hands. You're trying to contain God. You're trying to get him to fit in your nice little neat little box here. And God is on the move and he is doing wonderful things. And God has kept his promises and sent the one that would crush the head of the serpent. There's this story that's been unfolding and you've been too focused on the law and the land and this temple and thinking, okay, you've got it all figured out and everything's under control and now they're feeling threatened and so they're just trying to preserve this thing. They're like, we've got this. We know how life works with this. It's why the Israelites were even at times wanting to go back to Egypt even though they knew slavery was terrible. They're like, but that's familiar and there's some comfort there. And so now this world that they know, like on the one hand I'm empathetic because they're like, it's being threatened, they think. And yet really what's happening is there's an invitation to live in the way of Jesus, to experience his grace. And all of us, though, it's not just these people a couple thousand years ago, I think we recoil at that, we're just kind of like, I don't know, can I trust Jesus in this? Because I've got my little world here and I don't want anything messing it up. And what's true of the people back then is true of you and of me, that we build our identity on something other than Jesus. And we kind of make these claims, these these identity markers, and like I've got this, or I've accomplished this, or these people think well of me, or I look down my nose at these. And so all these things that we do, and what Stephen is doing, saying, That's no way to live. And so ask yourself: how are you trying to build your identity? What are you trying to build your identity upon? I love this quote. This is from Derek Thomas in his commentary in the book of Acts. He says this. This is an ancient, old problem. Anytime we try and build our identity through our accomplishments, our means, he says this. He says, this has always been the problem since Eden. Every deviation from God's way has centered on self effort and self-justification. Land, Law, temple, they were all ways that they were trying to self-justify themselves. He says, our Adamic natures are always attempting to build something with our hands, believing this merits us some measure of holiness or goodness. But the way of salvation is the exact opposite. As stated in lines worthy of repetition, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Is that the disposition of your heart? nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling Is that where your identity is found and he continues he says until we grasp this truth we are on the highway that leads to destruction stiff necked uncircumcised in heart and resisting the Holy Spirit and so this is what Stephen does at verse 51 look at these couple of verses here I mean this is confrontational there's no way around it but you have to see that this is in love he's like guys you're missing it Those things are not where you're to find your identity. And so he says this, you stiff-necked people. The imagery there is of an animal that's unwilling to sort of be bridled, it's uncontrollable, it's like there's this stiff, no, I won't do it kind of thing. Like some of you are like, yeah, that's the puppy we brought home, right? It was was so cute until it became stiff-necked, right? I mean, it's that, that sort of like, I will not bend my will to yours. He's saying, that's how you're acting. He says, you're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Like, all right, so you've got the marking of God's people as circumcised, but your hearts haven't been circumcised. He's like, the internal work has not happened. So you've got all the external behavioral things, like, oh, you can check that box and check that box, but the heart work hasn't happened yet. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He said, do you know the story I've been telling you? As we talked about Abraham and Joseph and Moses and all of these things, they rejected the prophets. God brought a word and ultimately said, eh, we don't wanna pay attention to that. That's the story. And I wish it was the story of those people back then, but that's the story of my life. And it's the story of your life, that there's this resistance to the things of God, that we rebel, and like, no, I'll do it my own way. He says, which of the prophets says your father's not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Speaking of Jesus here, he says, Whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, you did not keep it. It's like you've put your confidence in all the wrong things. So Stephen speaks a very difficult but timely word. Like, I need you to hear the story you think you believe. I need to retell the story so that you see that it's all pointing to Jesus and he showed up as the promised one and you put him to death. That Jesus died like the blood is on your hands and yet as part of the very definite plan and foreknowledge of God that God as part of his redemptive plan sent Jesus so that he would die in your place and in my place. So a question we need to ask ourselves before this passage wraps up is like, okay, that language there, like, how do you know if you're being stiff-necked? What what does it look like for you and I to have to be like uncircumcised in heart? Because we can hear those terms, like, I don't even know what what to do with that. And I think it's any time we're unwilling to examine the heart. And so we might even go through some sort of modifications and changes that result in something maybe that's even a bit more applauded or accepted even within Christian circles. It's the tendency to say, hey, I was acting in a very irreligious way and now I've kind of cleaned up but all you're doing is still trusting in yourself, making you the Lord of your story, all right? Making you the hero of your your story and what you end up in is just this kind of religious behavior that isn't going to lead to life. In his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller talks about this, and he, he recounts the, the story. I just want to uh, read you this section about a, a man that he knew during his college years. And look at the, the change that took place, and yet pay attention to the change that really didn't take place, that really needs to. He says, during my college years, he says, I knew a man who before professing faith in Christ was a notorious womanizer. His name was James. James's pattern was to seduce a woman, and once he had sex with her, lose interest and to move on. But when he embraced Christianity, he quickly renounced his sexual escapades. He became active in Christian ministry. However, his deep idol did not change. In every class or study, James was argumentative and dominating. In every meeting, he had to be the leader, even if he was not designated to be so. He was abrasive and harsh with skeptics when talking to them about his newfound faith. Eventually, it became clear that his meaning and value had not shifted to Christ, but was still based in having power over others. This is what made him feel alive. The reason James wanted to have sex with those women was not because he was attracted to them, but because he was seeking the power of knowing that he could sleep with them if he wanted to. Once he achieved that power, he lost interest in them. And the reason he wanted to be in Christian ministry is not because he was attracted to serving God and others, but the power of knowing he was right, that he had the truth, His power idol took a sexual form, and then it took a religious one. Here's a man that seemingly kind of got rid of one vice, but didn't really do the repentance and the needed work to see his heart change. And so then it just popped up again and manifests itself in different ways you and I are operating with this sort of stiff necked uncircumcised in heart, when we're simply just trying to modify our behavior to say, oh, I gotta change this thing, or this is how I'm gonna be known, or here's what my identity is, rather than repenting to God and saying, there's this deep-seated, like there's this power idol or this control or comfort, or I'm just long for people's approval, like there's something that's driving every single one of us, and it needs to be repented of, because that thing put Jesus on the cross. That thing murdered God's son, and we need to repent of that. So as we look at this, we'll conclude with this. I know there's been a lot of ground to cover here, but there's these remaining verses, and we see the way that Stephen has boldly declared, out of love, trying to tell people, like this is the story you're invited into. And I want to ask, though, how is he able to the very bitter end? I mean, you're going to see his response. It's it's not just that he's killed. It's the things that he's able to say and announce while he's being murdered that are very reminiscent of his Savior Jesus. How is Stephen able to endure? How are you and I able to endure? Though our hardship may not look like this, how can we actually find our identity in Christ in such a way that it creates this bold witness for Jesus? And to the extent that we see Jesus as our representative or another language here as our advocate, we'll be able to bear witness. And so look at verse 54 to 60, we'll conclude. Now when they heard these things, as you can imagine, it says, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I mean, they are cranked up here. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll look at this in the coming weeks. This man who would become the Apostle Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, as the rocks are being thrown at him, he's being pelted with rocks, he cried out with a loud voice. Imagine this. He's literally being stoned to death. He's fallen to the ground. And now he's shouting with a loud voice to get over the sound of the crowd and the anger and the fury and the rocks that are flying out. He cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them and when he had said this he fell asleep how in the world is somebody able to endure to that point to be able to say father don't hold us against them how is he able to echo the words of Jesus who says father forgive them for they know not what they do how is Stephen able to cry that out And I think the beautiful image that we get here of what was true for Stephen is true for you and for me. If you're a follower of Jesus, that Jesus is your advocate. He's your representative. It means this, that Jesus, certain scriptures tells us, is seated at the right hand of God. And in this point, Stephen looks up and he gets this vision of the risen Lord Jesus. And he is standing next to the throne. And it is Jesus that's ready to receive him. And it's Jesus that is looking at Stephen and approving of what he's doing. Not prove, you know, that because Stephen has proved himself, but because in that moment Stephen knows his identity is in Jesus. It's where John would write about in John chapter first John chapter two, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, one who's pleading your case. Meaning it's not, hey, look at you, look at Jamie, what he's done. He's trying to do the right thing. No, no, the advocate nature is like, look what Jesus has done. He's trusted in Jesus. Stephen is seeing Jesus as his advocate standing there ready to welcome him him into the heavenly realm. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who's the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, which means he's taken the wrath of God and turned it to favor. If you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, so it didn't go on you and me, and it was turned to favor. So now he's your advocate. Now he pleads for you. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And this is what Stephen gets. He's like, these people can still get in on the story. They're not too far. They can still be rescued. How do we know that that's actually true? Because Saul becomes Paul, plants a whole bunch of churches Sees, leads hundreds and thousands of people to faith in Jesus. This is the God that we bear witness to. We get to watch him do this and then we get to tell other people this. And so that's the good news. And so I want to just close with this. How can you and I experience Jesus as your advocate? Like, how could you grow in this? I think one, what would it look like for us to be a community of people that's taking risks for the gospel? When we step out in faith, we begin to see all the ways that Jesus, and we experience it at a whole new level. He's our advocate. Our identity is founded in him. So if you get rejected, if you get mocked, if you get ridiculed, misunderstood, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because Jesus is your advocate. There's an invitation to experience by knowing the scriptures. what, What did Stephen do? He knew the Bible. I mean, he just stood up, all right? And he's just preaching this sermon. He's calling all these stories together and he's able to see how they all point to Jesus. And then there's this disposition where he's looking to heaven, that his gaze is upward and he's like, this is what I need. I need more of Jesus. I need more of the gospel. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And do you and I have that disposition? Are we looking to self or are we looking up to heaven? Are we looking up to Jesus? And so as the worship team comes back up, let me give us a moment to respond trusting that the Spirit is at work right now. I want to give you a couple moments in prayer. What do you need to repent of? What maybe has been that identity marker for you that the Lord is saying, hey, that's a good gift. Enjoy it as a good thing, but don't worship that thing. What do you need to repent of? And then there's an invitation to rejoice in the finished work of Jesus. So would we celebrate that? I'll give us instructions how we're going to celebrate that together as a community. And then we get this invitation. We get to be part of this retelling of people's stories. Say, oh, yes, that's good. And that, Look at that, that thing, but it's meant to point you to something more fulfilling, something that is truly fulfilling, something that is ultimate. Can we be people that retell the story of people's lives so that it would sync up and connect with the story of the gospel? So let me pray for us and give you a moment. Father, thank you for this text. I know it is a lengthy text and there's a lot in there. But we thank you that your word is living and active, that, uh, that it doesn't return void, that God is just trusting you in this moment, that there's been truth that's been proclaimed and that Holy Spirit, you're going to take that and apply that to our hearts. So I pray now that you would bring conviction where it's needed, that you would lead us in repentance. Would you apply the truths of the gospel in new and fresh ways to our hearts that so we might actually rejoice in who we are in you? God, would you use us as people that are sent out to declare your excellencies. So God, we thank you for the witness of Stephen who pointed us for the witness of Jesus. We all need more of Jesus. And so we pray now that we would experience, God, your your grace and your goodness in this, this time of reflection and of prayer. So hear our prayers now, God, for your glory and for our great joy. In Jesus' name.